0: 18
1: plus. It's time for the Bible Geek. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern deconstruct super powered demigod. Guess what? It's the Bible Geek. I uh, was out doing some errands this morning and saw a woman holding a sign on a street corner, and I thought it's got to be some sort of car wash thing or whatever, but no, it said, Repent! Today is the day of salvation. Eh, Interesting that people are still doing that. Oh, religion is so fascinating. But uh, anyway, let's get on to some fascinating stuff about the Bible. Uh, Last time Jackson Lee asked about uh, James, John, uh, and Cephas in the Epistle to the Galatians, uh, it was part of a larger question, and having ranted on for a while uh, about the latter, I forgot the former. Uh, Who the heck were the so-called pillars, as Galatians calls them? No mention uh, of the 12 apostles or disciples. It's the three pillars uh, that uh, Paul supposedly consulted and uh, sought uh, their uh, imprimatur and God, according to Galatians. Um, Who are these guys supposed to be? Uh, it, It appears that they are the uh, same as the inner circle of Jesus in the Gospels, where we have constant references to Peter, James, and John. Well, not constant, but several references to Peter, James, and John. Um, uh, There's this this, uh, big uh, deal I've mentioned often before, uh, the uh, theory of Robert Eisenman, which uh, is at many points I find pretty convincing that the twelve disciples really are fictional characters, uh, and they represent fictive multiplications uh several different versions of the uh the pillars the the so called brothers of Jesus and uh, the uh, the also known as the heirs because the Uh, James, the just, uh, was uh, basically the caliph of Jesus, and and then afterwards so was uh, Simeon uh, Barcleophus and so on. Well, um, in the Gospels, Peter and Andrew are brothers, and they were fishermen from Galilee. James and John, sons of Zebedee, were fishermen nearby and uh the uh and so you you have those four but they're reduced to the three uh in uh, most of these references and i have to think that is because either there's been some confusion between these four of the 12 disciples and the three pillars or that um again we have a uh, an indication of Eisenman's theory that uh, the original group was the three pillars and uh, that they have been, uh, again, uh, they're the basis uh, for the seed from which the twelve disciples fictively grew, so that they're not uh, a three of the same people that follow Jesus as disciples because there weren't any such people. Uh, and uh, so uh, the the big question that remains is who is Cephas? Is Cephas the same as Peter? As I've kind of assumed for the you know for the sake of argument all along here, the the one of the redactors of Galatians thought so because uh, when he in another one of his interpolations when he's referring to Cephas he calls him Peter. And uh, th- this is odd. Why the change? Well, it attests that this redactor understood Cephas and Peter to be the same person, but slipped and used the more familiar name, Peter. Uh, well, wait a second. Isn't Peter called? Uh, the, well, Peter is said to be uh, the uh, Greek for the Aramaic Cephas, the rock and the gospel of John. Uh, Yeah, the names are the same in meaning, but it may be a gratuitous inference by the fourth evangelist that they were the same. There are a couple of old Christian sources, including, I think, the Epistle of the Apostles, where Cephas is listed as a separate apostle from Peter. And uh, Samuel Sandmel says he's not that sure that uh, Peter and Cephas were supposed to be the same guy. Uh, So he might have been, he might not have been, I don't see any way of uh, being sure of that. Um, but uh, so that 's just some some interesting trivia, perhaps um did these three actually have any connection with a historical Jesus? There are hints that no they didn 't they had a whole separate identification with another stream of uh, of uh, ancient thought. Because their their nicknames, epithets, whatever you want to call them, have religious significance in their own right that have nothing to do with Jesus. For instance, James and John. I was going into this last time with someone else's question. The sons of Zebedee appear to be some version of Castor and Pollux, uh, the one of well the one of well they, they held up the dome of the of the sky. And uh, as John Allegro points out, of the sacred mushroom and the cross. Uh, Boanerges, which uh, Mark says Jesus named James and John, does not, by any stretch, mean "son of sons of thunder" in uh, in Greek, but uh, it does appear to be uh, another version of a Sumerian name, Geshpuanur. Uh, and uh, w- as with loads of these Bible names, the same element can function either as a suffix or a prefix. It can go on the end or the beginning. The meaning will be the same, like uh, jo- Yohanan, uh Yahweh's gift, or Hananiah, gift of Yahweh, or in Greek Theodora, uh, g- the God's gift, or Dorothea, gift of the gods. Right? The same thing, doesn't matter. Well, uh, Allegro points out that you could have either Gesh Pu'anur or Pu'anergesh, Boanerges, and that it means upholder of the vault of heaven, which is also part of Sumerian mythology. So many of these things were held in common. And uh, that would sure fit what they're then called sons of thunder, implying sons of the thunderer. Uh, Castor and Pollux were the sons of Zeus the Thunderer, and they upheld the vault of heaven. So this implies that uh, the the world rests on these guys. They're like Atlas or whatever. There's no real connection with Jesus. It's a kind of a cosmological, mythological connection. Mark doesn't seem to realize that anymore. Um, Similarly, uh, Cephas or Peter, take your pick, the rock, and and upon it he will build his church and so forth. Uh, this uh, reflects rabbinic lore that said that, well, earlier than that even, as Margaret Barker points out in a great book, The Gate of Heaven, the... Uh, The temple was built on a rock that supposedly was uh, the rock sealing up the great Tahome, the ocean depth on which the world uh, floats. And at the flood of Noah, the water flooded out of there, and in the last days it will come out at a safer pace and form the the river uh the, the, that that uh, goes through the New Jerusalem uh, in Eden. The four rivers came from there, and so on uh Eden really isn't a a geographical description of any place on earth it's it's a symbolic um, uh Set up uh, that uh, that had to do with the blueprint of the Jerusalem Temple, uh, and uh, that's re- and the whole temple was modeled on Eden and so on. So uh, Peter or Cephas is the uh, the 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 the, uh, the uh, bedrock of the whole creation. Now, does that sound like? the the name of a disciple of Jesus is there anything christian about that no it's this older primordial thing so to me this implies that the pillars originally had uh, significance in a uh, in a different adjacent mythological system so pretty fascinating stuff i think You ain't going to hear it in Sunday school. Now, okay, let's uh, go on to today's question. Sorry to have forgotten that one. This is uh, Dave Dunn, sometimes known as St. Dave from Olympia, Washington. Oh, there's the Olympian deities again. I was raised in Utah, but I'm not a Mormon, except in that way that a predominant culture can soak into your psyche without you noticing it. I get all the inside jokes and cultural references that Mormons make to each other. I consider myself a non-believer, but I've always been interested in religion. About ten years ago, our family was attending services at a local Methodist church. The Methodist pastor was amazing and reignited my interest in the Bible. She had what seemed like a unique ability to find something new and interesting in Bible passages and to show me the book in new ways. One example is the passage from 2 Kings two twenty-three through 24 about Elisha and the she-bears. I've heard you discuss this as a cautionary tale about the consequences of mocking God's prophets, and this interpretation was certainly useful to the priestly class. But there is another way to see the story. Elisha is brand new to the prophet gig. He just barely received the... Oh, wait a minute, am I right... Yeah, he just barely received the spirit of Elijah. He's done two miracles, parting the water and purifying the spring. He is feeling mighty pleased with himself, but not realizing exactly how much power comes with a, quote, double portion, unquote, of Elijah's spirit. When the kids mock him, he yells back at them something like, curse you, you rotten kids, not realizing what the consequences would be. So this is also a cautionary tale about thoughtless words and the abuse of power. Of course, she also quoted from the other scripture, with great power comes great responsibility. Of course, that's the book of Spider-Man. I hope uh, this take of the story warms your geeky heart. Yeah, I, I don't buy it, got to admit. I mean, that's that's great homiletical material, because it's uh darn near impossible to apply this text or even make it look good unless you pull a stunt like this but it rests on psychologizing the uh the, the biblical character when the bible displays singularly little interest in the inner thoughts or motives of any characters it, it seems to me to be a, an attempt to it's like what cadbury said about the peril of modernizing jesus uh and in fact th- this is even weirder than the thing with the bears because uh this time elisha is depicted as unwittingly cursing him, sending a hex on him, when he uh, it only means to say, you damn kids. Uh, and uh, that seems to me to be anachronistic and contrived also, though it's pretty imaginative. Okay, um, getting closer to a question, I promise, he says. In the story of the loaves and fishes, none of the versions, I think there's six scattered through the four gospels, show explicit magic. Yeah, Matthew and Mark both have it twice, Luke and John once each. They don't say that Jesus magically created food. They say, one, Jesus blessed the meal, two, shared what food the disciples had with the crowd, Three, everyone had plenty to eat, and four, there were tons of leftovers. If you've ever been to a Methodist potluck, it's not a mystery what happened. The bonehead disciples were not the only ones who had some food, but not enough to feed everyone. By leading by example, Jesus got everyone to share some of what they had, and it turns out there was more than enough for everyone. A nice sermon about the power of generosity again. uh, That's uh, sermon material. My question is, why is this considered a miracle? It seems that everyone refers to the story as the miracle of the loaves and fishes. Once I saw the utterly mundane explanation for this story, this seemed really weird. I mean, a few verses later, it says leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Nobody calls that the miracle of teleportation to Tyre and Sidon. Everyone seems to understand that Jesus walked, rode, or used some normal, uh, non-miraculous transportation to get there yet? The story about sharing your lunch is considered a miracle. Is is there an older miracle story that is peeking through here? Would early Christians have seen something else here? Were there traditions of community meals to make the potluck parallel with? What's going on here? Uh, Dave, I have to admit, I, I think this is a reversion to the implausible Protestant rationalism of the 18th century, uh, because the uh, the, the uh, story says that uh, Jesus multiplied the food which the disciples gave the crowd, and there was this surprisingly huge amount left over uh it doesn't say anything about anybody else's food Th- this is what you would if you thought this you would say the bible is simply uh, mistaken because it gives no hint of of what this suggestion posits uh happening and uh there's i've heard people say that yeah this that's what's going on but they're just saying that uh, it's been trumped up into a miracle uh it you wonder why the story didn't simply say this if they wanted to make this point which would be a good point uh but no uh it's uh, i mean if that happened uh then then this story is uh is no longer about it right This is a story in which he miraculously multiplies the food uh, and um, uh so he says, "Give them what you have and see how far it goes and that 's what they do and nobody understood what happened and uh later on uh jesus says uh Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven? Oh my gosh, we didn't bring along any bread. And Jesus hears him and says, You idiots! Uh, how many lo- leftover loaves did we have in the one case? Oh, uh, so-and-so. Uh, how many the second time? Ah, uh, so-and-so. Number. And he says, Don't you get it? If I wanted bread, I could make some bread on the spot. That certainly implies that that's what he did before. Too. Uh, so I, I really cannot see that as anything but a, a really a kind of a polite attempt to debunk uh, the miracle story. Again, pretty clever. But then a lot of those rationalist guesses were. Um, so thanks for bringing that up. Fascinating. Uh, let's see here who we got with us um, next. Uh, got to scroll down and uh, John from New York City. Christian apologists defending the historical resurrection of Jesus often use the appearance of Jesus to Paul as evidence that the resurrection really happened. A historic appearance to Paul would have had to occur post-ascension, according to the New Testament timeline. Yeah, the the Lugan timeline, basically. In in order to argue that Paul is encountering the resurrected Jesus, wouldn't you have to assume that Jesus returned to earth after the ascension? Should we now uh, be expecting a third coming? If Paul had a vision or spiritual encounter with Jesus, should we really consider that a resurrection appearance? I need not remind the geek of all the visions and appearances of the dead that people throughout history have claimed. Most don't understand those to be resurrection appearances. After all, nobody considers the transfiguration to be a resurrection appearance of Moses and Elijah. Now, let me pause here. Uh, of course, Moses and Elijah in ancient Israelite belief never died, so they this was a post-ascension of Elijah and Moses. Appearance, but not a resurrection one because they weren't dead, right? They went to heaven instead of dying. Uh, I think uh, that you've grasped the uh, view of Acts about Paul precisely that his visions of the resurrected Jesus, the Damascus Road and then later on in Corinth uh, are not supposed to be resurrection appearances. When Paul talks about evidence for the resurrection he pointedly says those who went to Jerusalem with him saw him again. He doesn't say he did right? The, the stuff where you know, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? Or last of all he appeared unto me. These are in the Pauline epistles not in Acts. And the author of Acts, Luke, Polycarp, whatever, uh, he wants to legitimate Paul in the eyes of those who don't like him, or the kind of Christianity for which he functioned as the figurehead. But he wants to make it clear that uh, though he and Peter are like peas in a pod, if you like either, you've got to like both. Still, Paul does not quite fit the criteria for uh, being an apostle. I know what you're thinking. Um, you guys know your Bible so well. In Acts 14, when he goes to Lycaonia, aren't Paul and Barnabas called the apostles there? Well, in the Western text, in one of the two instances, they're not. And I suspect the other one is an interpolation also. Uh, because, anyway, look at it. It's it's violating the pattern. Even if that was original of the text, it's another case of what... Uh, um, What's his name? I can't think of it. Called uh, editorial fatigue. Eh? What the heck? Um, nah, I can't think of it. I'm going senile. You, you know who I mean, though. Uh, so, uh, okay. So I think you're right. All right. Um, continuing with John, I consider First Corinthians 15 to be a way for Paul to bolster his, strict, his street cred among the early church. Hey, Jesus showed himself to me. I'm the real deal. In a similar way, Moses got an up-close view of God's back. It seems like apologists get themselves into a larger problem by trying to bolster gospel resurrection encounters with 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, Yeah, though there is an answer but they they ain't going to like it right because um it, there are so many conflicts between first corinth uh, between the pauline epistles and the book of acts that uh anybody who's not an axe grinder can see that uh these are variant traditions the one each casts some doubt on the other and uh so whoever wrote first corinthians 15 Three through 11, I don't think it was the author of the rest of the epistle, um, he wasn't thinking of it as the author of Acts did. He figured that, yes, he, Paul was vouchsafed a resurrection appearance in the same sense the others were, but that is certainly not the view of, of uh, Acts. Now, they could say that uh, Acts is not to be taken seriously. Uh, and and that 1 Corinthians 15, is I'm sure you know, uh, th- this particular part of it, verses 3 through 11, uh, he appeared to this one and that one, and to me, uh, that this, they say, ah, oh, this is the earliest testimony to the resurrection, and Paul must have gotten it when he went to the raccoon convention of the apostles uh, that we read about in Galatians 2 and Acts 15. That's all surmise, and uh, there, are, there are plenty of other... Indicators, as I've argued, uh, that uh, uh, show this is not early material. But they think it is, and so they could get rid of the conflict by saying, well, you can just forget about Acts. But of course they can't do that because they're not historians. They're inerrantist dogmatists. Okay, sorry. Uh, last paragraph. Sorry about this, John. Is it possible that a pre-canonical gospel account of the resurrection had Jesus ascending into heaven on the same day he was raised? I believe the Gospel of Peter has something like this happening. Uh, also, in excuse me, in Luke, right? It's very clear that it's Easter Day that he ascends. Unlike Acts, where it's forty days later. Okay, and then appeared to people only as visions thereafter. This scenario certainly fits much better with what 1 Corinthians 15 states. It also helps explain why there were so many sects who had varying beliefs about what type of being Jesus was. Uh, well, this is kind of like what uh, Acts is saying. Uh, it just has the uh, date of the ascension a bit different. But, it's but uh, yeah, I think he is saying there were simply visions afterwards. Stevens, for instance when he was being martyred, stoned to death. But uh, this notion of uh, Jesus appearing again on earth after the ascension was actually quite common, and uh, surely... Luke knew about that, or Polycarp, or whoever the author of Acts, because this idea that he lingered for 40 days teaching them inside stuff he had never said while he was on earth alive, Uh, this is pure Gnosticism. There were some Gnostics that said Jesus uh, remained on earth, Uh, what is it? Uh, Yeah, uh, 18 months. There were others that said he stayed on Earth 11 years. Uh, Some make it explicit that he ascended, but then came back for a long period of teaching, like I think the... uh, the Secret Book of James, or maybe it's the apoc- uh, the uh, Apocalypse of James. I forget, but they're Nag Hammadi texts that are very clear that he ascended, but then came back, and that's what uh, like acts is anti-Gnostic, but knows the um, the gimmick. So so does the Epistle of the Apostles. This if, if uh, in the record of what people thought Jesus taught there is no hint of our doctrines, well, then uh, one way to take care of that is to say that he came back and taught the inside stuff later. I mean, in a sense, that's also what's going on in the Gospel of John, right? Because the... uh, Uh, The paraclete who is to come will reveal the deeper truths about Jesus, uh, which he was unable to uh, get through to the disciples during his lifetime. Well, that implies a kind of a a return of Jesus. And in the original version of the Gospel of John, there was no second coming. So that was going to be it. Uh, So, uh, yeah, should you uh, expect a second coming not in John? In in Acts though yes, uh, okay thanks John. Um here's a request for an Oxford Don voice, so let's pretend I'm C.S. Lewis, and uh, this is from Karim Gantus, a good pal. I have what possibly could be a new and valid theory of the historicity for Jesus. I'm going to call it neo-historicism, and you'll see why as I explain it. Mythicism, or minimal historicism, is not new, but has only been given a fair hearing recently. I do believe that mythicism is a powerful theory, but I also think that the issue of the historicity of Jesus is not over, despite modern scholarship. Traditional historicity has huge problems. These problems are so acute that it is no wonder that so many people don't believe that Jesus was a historical person. To try and prove a particularly strong case for Jesus using traditional approaches is futile and can't be done, so we need a new theory of historicity. This neo-historicism should be an attempt to find Jesus in history, but not limiting itself to assumptions based on devotional views of Jesus. Devotional views cannot entertain the idea that Jesus was born too much, uh, uh, on the either side of A.D. 0. Well, of course, you know, there wasn't an A.D. 0 or A.D. 1, but I know that's what you mean. Uh, but critical views can. I think we have two pieces of evidence to start with. One, René Salm found that Nazareth was inhabited before Jesus was supposedly born, after he supposedly died, but not when he was supposedly alive, Right. Two, there is at least one tradition, and correct me if I'm wrong, which places Jesus at about 40 B.C., not at A.D. 0 or 1. Actually, a bit earlier than that, that he was crucified during the reign of Alexander Genius one of the last of the Hasmonean kings, uh, so about 60 years um, earlier than than you're saying. But, yeah, and there's some other hints and uh, in, in other writings, too, to the same effect. These two pieces of evidence come from independent sources and methods. Um, if they are legitimate, we may have the beginning of something very tantalizing. A Watthold sock. Um, uh, let's see... Um, G.A. Wells kind of says this, and so does Alvar Eligard that uh, the Jesus referred to in the uh, epistles was a real human being, an historical figure, but not one of very recent history. Yeah, okay. Uh, There are. peripheral pieces of evidence, or at least claims, which could also be useful. There is a church in the Middle East, whose name I've forgotten, which claims that its members are descendants of Jesus. This is not an outrageous claim for critical scholarship. Nothing in the canonical New Testament would preclude such a thing, and nothing about Jesus as we understand him would preclude such a thing either. I do not believe or dismiss this claim, I just find it curious. Yeah, that I'm not familiar with. Uh, so what do you think, old oh, sport? There might be enough here for a paper, and if anyone does want to take this idea and submit it, please do. If I were an academic, I'd love to try and write a paper about this, but I'm happy for others to give it a shot. It sounds like you're already beginning a paper, Kareem. Uh, keep up the good work. Um, let's see, Lena Einhorn argues that uh, the Jesus story is later, uh, that it takes place in the 40s, and uh, based on some fascinating stuff in Josephus. So yeah, this is really, really interesting. I take the hints that Jesus is born in various decades as signs of historicizing a mythical figure, trying to figure out where he would have fit in if it were real, but... Yeah, I mean, there might well be a historical Jesus. There might well have been, right? I am not a dogmatist on the point, and um, could could well be. And uh, this is pretty interesting. Uh, keep on it, I suggest. Hmm, let's see. Um, This is... Uh, okay, here's another one from Kareem. Remember, I've uh, collected these things over several months now. Uh, let's see. Mm, similar voice request. Let's vary it a little bit to an English clubman. I have a couple of questions about parenting in relation to the Bible. Keep in mind, I'm not a parent and I'm not married. This is personal, so I don't expect detailed answers. First, what were your views on parenting relating to the Bible? Did you ever make distinctions between the Old and New Testaments? Did you look to the Bible for guidance or did you follow your instinct? On what did you and your wife disagree? Did any of your views on parenting change when you left Christianity? Well, I had already pretty much left any kind of Biblicism uh, long before uh, Carol and I married and had our great daughters. So this didn't exactly uh, come up with the Bible. Though we did read bedtime stories from a children's Bible to Victoria and Veronica, as well as uh, kids' versions of the Trojan War and the adult version of uh the gilgamesh epic uh oh, let's see uh uh, didn't mind using Jesus, historical or fictional, as a role model in some respects. Uh, my second question is about raising children religiously. I'd like to propose something possibly radical to some people. A parent who is a Christian, however they got there, should not raise his children as Christians. That sounds a bit heavy-handed, but let me explain. I read Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, some years ago. He includes anecdotes about his personal and professional life, and I give him credit for his candor. So for me, it was interesting reading. Anyway, he describes his attitude to life before he was a Christian. He was more aggressive, he drank a bit too much, etc. He wasn't such a bad guy, but after he became a Christian, he changed. His kids noticed it, obviously, and his family life became more positive. His wife was already a Christian anyway, but I want to keep the story simple. So now his kids have two Christian Parents. Nothing wrong with that in the slightest. But if we focus on Strobel himself, we note a simple fact a man who was unenlightened. Uh, then became enlightened, that is how he would probably see it. You you see what happened, a man who was fallen gets raised up. Should his children, or the children of any Christian, be denied that experience? What's the point of becoming good or enlightened if you don't have a chance to be fallen beforehand? Being raised a Christian from day one will possibly result in two things. One, you become soft and too isolated from the rest of the world. Two, you take the whole thing for granted and never really appreciate it. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Well, um, in churches that uh, practice infant baptism, they don't pretend that the kid, though truly a, a, a sheep and the flock of a lamb and the flock of Christ... Is necessarily going to embrace it, but they try to maneuver him or her into it by catechism leading to confirmation. In theory, what's happening is that your birthright has been claimed for you, but you have to appropriate it. You could just say, hell with it, and refuse to be confirmed. You have that option. But, of course, it's kind of an assembly line. It's expected of you, and it usually happens. So I don't think that necessarily obviates the problem of either taken it for granted or being inoculated, vaccinated with it so that you get rid of it and uh, you've had enough that happens quite a bit the same thing happens in uh, believers' baptism churches, because they usually have an infant dedication ceremony. Technically, they don't think that the kid is a Christian or receives the Holy Spirit, but on the other hand, of such as the kingdom of heaven made. They've not yet reached the age of accountability, so if, God forbid, they should die, they'll go to heaven. But when they're exiting the age, when they're entering the uh, age of accountability, then They got to decide, and so what they do is to try to set up the kids to have this unsaved, saved conversion thing, which is sometimes uh, ridiculous and a charade, though with the um, pressure heaped on the kids at vacation Bible school, it often happens anyway with the result that the kid will look back on and say, oh yeah, I was saved at so-and-so age. I was saved under these circumstances. Even though there wasn't much they were saved from, but they were saved from going to hell, and they'll think of it that way. That may work better, keeping them in the fold, I don't know. It's kind of silly in a way. I like to uh, use this illustration of how I was watching the old Mike Douglas uh, talk show decades ago, and he had this uh, little kid country singer on there, and, uh, you know, a lot of these songs have to do with uh, having a depraved life but snapping out of it or not snapping out of it well here's this young kid singing if i had it all to do over again you do have it all to do again buddy because it ain't again uh so to have that kind of thing seems artificial but you know it's kind of a puberty right and that could mark a change Um, that's usually when these kids are approached to be baptized, and it's made clear to them, now this is a commitment to really following Christ, you better mean business. So sometimes there is a a conversion. It's from childhood to uh, adolescence, maybe, or very young adulthood, but it is a kind of a puberty rite and a sort of a conversion, because all puberty rites are conversion rites. Uh, rituals, right? You, you, when you're married, you're being converted from the single life to the married one. When you're uh, ordained, quote-unquote, to some vocation you've studied for, that's a conversion. You're, you're being born again, hallelujah, into a new stage of life. So, that's, there is something to that. But uh, I would uh, think that a parent really does have the obligation to raise their child in a wholesome way, Uh, And my solution to the problem is uh, to make sure your kids know what your religious heritage is uh, and that they know that it's up to them one day to decide whether to embrace it or not. Uh, Because I I personally think that if you raise kids without religion or simply with a comparative religion course, you're uh, you're also inoculating them against religion in, in another way. Uh, You will have raised them so that they don't have a religious identity, and they may then figure, I don't need one. Uh, And, of course, uh, I don't think they do. Like uh, some Bubba Free John, some guru said, uh, a human being needs religion like a fish needs a bicycle. Mm -hmm. Um, So... John says, I'm wondering what your thoughts are about Papias of Hierapolis. Papias, sometimes said Papias, uh, claimed that he spoke with John the Apostle before he died in roughly 90 A.D., uh, John told him that he wrote the book of John and claimed to know Peter, Mark, etc. Many people claim that Papius's writings prove that the Bible was written by actual people named Mark, John, Matthew, and Luke. Even though Papias' writings are from 100 to 150 AD, they claim that they are still contemporary accounts because he was just repeating what John told him who was a contemporary of Jesus. Is Papias a reliable source for the authors of the Gospels? Uh, John, this is not quite what the quotes from Papias say. He says that he made it his business to attend upon any of the uh, elders uh, who had heard the disciples. Uh, and uh, he he mentions uh, a John, which could be John, the son of Zebedee, there has been a truckload of stuff written about that. Or it could be the elder John, if there's a difference. Um, and he mentions Aristion. Uh, what the heck? Um, I wonder if that's supposed to be Jan- uh, Joseph of Arimathea. Uh, Richard Carrier's pointed out that Arimathea could be broken down into syllables, meaning best disciple town. Ari is an aristocrat, the best uh, mathetase disciple, and the E-A suffix, uh, meaning that he's like a beloved disciple. Uh, well, yeah, it, it, Aristion could mean the same thing. It might be a shorter version, but who knows? That's just speculation on my part. Uh, however, this is already uh, you might say third hand, and the stuff he says. He he mentions, He quotes a parable that appears actually to be a short version of something from the Syriac Apocalypse of Baruch, uh, and uh, he and his story about the Judas Iscariot and what happened to him. That he Luke uh, and well at least the beginning of Acts says that after his perfidy. Uh, Judas swelled up to the dimensions of a parade balloon uh, and could not pass between the buildings opposite each other on street corners. Uh, And uh, he was urinating worms and then, of course, finally exploded, as Acts says. Um, They usually translate it uh, in Acts, uh, he fell headlong and burst open, but you could just as easily translate it as he... uh, he uh, swelled up and exploded. That's, uh, I think that's more likely. But if he thought this was apostolic tradition, come on, he thinks that, he says that uh, Ma- that Matthew wrote down the logia, the sayings of Jesus in Hebrew, possibly meaning Aramaic, and everybody translated them as best they could. If he's talking about our Gospel of Matthew, that was not written in Hebrew. It's based on Mark, which was written in Greek, at least most think so. Uh, He says that Mark wrote down the recollections of Peter. Sure doesn't sound that way. Uh, You you would expect that if he had done that, it would be sort of like these accounts of Martin Luther's table talk. Uh, But it isn't. And so... uh, it, it's, uh, I think that he is, whoever he was, was no reliable source of information about Jesus or the Gospels. He doesn't mention Luke's Gospel or John's Gospel. Uh, so, in fact, I think of these uh, fictive chains of attestation attached to the Islamic Hadith. Oh, the prophet said this, and how do I know? Well, I got it from Ibn so-and-so, who got it from Ibn so-and-so, and another 20 or 30 names who heard the prophet say it. Well, we know from Muslims themselves, close to the events, that all this stuff was made up. And uh seems to me that Papias is the same sort of thing. It's a ne- general name for a collection of dubious so-called tradition, so I, I place no stock in that, and I think it only confuses the study of uh, the Gospels. It, it pretends to clarify them, but taint. Uh, ain't. Mm. Well, I got things to do. I'm going to have to cut it short for today, I'm afraid, and uh, I had fun. I hope you did. Um, once again, let me make a shameless pitch for fun so if you can help out. But if you can't, don't worry. Uh, I will see you uh, soon enough on another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. And thanks for being with me on this one.
0: Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Serjan Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvender.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com, and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torrin Atkinson.